Our Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the children who are gathered here today. Thank you for their lives. We thank you for your grace upon our lives. We thank you for your presence in our midst. We say, may your name be highly exalted in Jesus' name. Father, as we listen to your word, I pray, O Lord, that you speak to us by yourself in Jesus' name. You give us the thing that we need to hear. You tell us the things that we need to learn. And only your name will be praised. For it's in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Amen. Today we'll be continuing our series on the lessons on the kingdom. We'll be concluding our series, actually, which we started at the beginning of March. So let us turn our Bibles to the book of... Book of what? Chapter... Okay. Matthew 13. (laughs) Matthew 13. We'll be reading from verse 47 to verse 52. Bible says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sieve out the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said unto them, Have you understood all these things? And they say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then he said unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and things what old. Amen. So last week we looked at a very short um, portion of scripture to examine specific parables that had to do with how we value the gospel, right? When we started this series, we, we looked at the gospel, we looked at the Christian and our relationship with the word of God. Then after that we looked at our relationship with the world. Then last week we looked at what how we value the gospel. And today we're going to be looking at the Christian and our relationship with the dispensation of the gospel. Or the Christian and our relationship with time. The concept of time that we are living in right now. We're in time, right? Because we're going to sleep today and wake up and we'll say it's a new it's a new day. We woke up this morning and we said today is Sunday. I can look at that clock and say it's 11.25. We exist within time. And the reason why we're looking at the relationship between the Christian and the gospel disposition or the Christian and time is because the gospel disposition, it is what is going to end the age. What I mean by that is that when Jesus was asked the question, how shall these things be and what will the sign be of when the end shall come? When his disciples were talking to him. He gave them a lot of things. He said, what, there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars. Father would hate his 
son, son would hate their father. He gave them so many, many things. Some of the things that we are seeing in the world today. But he now said, even when you see all these things, the end has not yet come. Then at the end, he said, and when the gospel, this message, is preached to every nation of the world, then the end shall what? Shall come. That's what Jesus said. So when I say we're looking at our relationship with time, or we're looking at our relationship with the gospel disposition, we're saying the same thing. Because the gospel disposition will end time. It will end time. When time is over, and when we leave this world and go to the world that is to come, there will be no more preaching. Right? There will be no more Christian life. Christianity exists for this earth. It doesn't exist for heaven. In heaven, we are just like Christ, we are his brothers and sisters. In heaven, there will be no need to distinguish between someone that is a Christian and someone that is not a Christian, right? Because we are all, in quotes, at that point, Christians. Because we are like Christ, living with him fully as he is. So what will end our stay here on earth? What will bring time to a close? It's either death, that's you grow old and you die, or Christ returns at the end of time. So if Christ is going to return in our own generation, and we are alive to see it, all well and good. If it's our children's children that would be here when Christ returns, we'll have died. So essentially, we're looking at our relationship with time, because one day our time will be up, one way or the other. It's either you die, or Jesus comes. And that's what this parable is about. But like I said to us and I've been telling us over time, Jesus did not give a parable that the people that were around could not relate with. A parable is a story of earthly relevance that has heavenly interpretation or meaning. So Jesus did not give any parable throughout this series that we have been considering that the people could not relate with. Last week, when we were looking at the parable of the pearl, I was telling you why he used the pearl and he didn't maybe use a diamond. It's because the people of that time in this Eastern culture, the Orientals, they favor and they value pearls more than diamonds. It's we in the West that are kind of crazy about diamonds. And I said if Jesus was alive today, he might probably have used crypto as the parable because today that is what we are with are crazy about. He would always speak based on the understanding and the things that the people of that time can relate with. And now we're in a section of parables where he's no more talking in public. He's now talking to them in private. He said two of those parables outside. But these two, he said them inside with the disciples alone. And now he's talking about the parable of the net. Because among his disciples... There are four fishermen. If there's anybody that would fully understand what he's saying in the natural, they were in that room with him. Because the thing about a dragnet is this. The way a dragnet was constructed at the time was that on the corners, you have hooks 
But those hooks are usually of non-sinkable material, like plastic. So the corners will be able to float, right? But in the middle, you have lead, usually, because lead is heavy, and lead sinks. So essentially, when they throw the dragnet into the sea, what will happen is the bottom would what would sink down, but the corners would be floating on top because they can't sink. The corners are just hooked with like pegs so that it's easy for them to gather. And when they do that, what they do is they wait. They wait for all the fish to what? To come in. And when the fish comes in, they now go to the corners and pick up the nets and bring it out of the sea. But you see, it would have been all right if that was all that happened. But when they bring the fish out of the sea, they still have to separate the good one from what? From the bad one. And herein lies the problem. Because when we're looking at the parable of the tars, it was clear to us that the tars represent those that would never accept Jesus. The wheat are those that accept Jesus. And the ground is what is the world. But you see, in this parable, the net is actually everybody that actually accepts the gospel. Because you see, no matter what happens, that net cannot capture all the fish in the sea. And that is the saddest thing about Christianity in a strange way. In that as much as it is God's desire for everybody to be saved, not everybody will be saved. Not everybody will accept Jesus. So in this parable, the net is not the world. The sea is the world. And there are various fishes. And the net comes and what? And sinks in, waiting for as many as possible to what? To gather into that net. For as many as possible that can accept Jesus, the net is still what? Waiting till today. Which is why Jesus said, and when the world ends, then there will be what? A separation. So we're living in a time when anybody can still accept Jesus Christ at any time. That's why we go out to preach. That's why we go out for evangelism. That's why we reach out to our friends. That's why we talk to them about Jesus. Because we're still within that time. We're still in the dispensation of the gospel. There is still time. The net is still in the sea. But the reason why this parable is important and the reason why this parable is the final one is because it is a parable really about finishing strong. Finishing this our race, ending this Christian life strong. Because what Jesus is trying to let his disciples know is that it is not enough for you to simply say you are in the net. Because when the end of the world comes and the net is brought out of the water and we are before our Father, there will still be a separation between good fish and bad fish. 
So it's not a parable about who you are today. It's a parable about who you would be when your time is up. Either by death or by the return of Jesus. That's what this parable is about. And it's important for us because not everybody that starts the race well finishes it well. This is not a parable about your Christian life and its states today. God wants us to be conscious about what will happen when it ends. How we would be. Who we would be when we are done here. Because in the world today, so many have gone who did not finish strong. Who before their lives ended, they left Jesus, even if they did mighty things for him. They might have healed the sick, they might have raised the dead, they might have been wonderful ministers, but not everybody finishes strong. You see, God wants us to be conscious of how much the devil does not age. You see, the devil is not old, he's not young. He's a spirit, the same way God is. If you live 120 years in this world, the devil has extreme patience to wait for the opportunity that you will give him so that he can essentially deal with you and take you away from God. It's never too late for the devil to do that. The same way it is never too late for God to save anybody. As long as they are still within this what? Time. Still breathing oxygen. Even if a man gets to the point where he is 90 before he abandons Jesus Christ. To the devil, that's no time. He's patient enough to wait till that 90. Because he knows that at the end, there will be a separation of what? Good fish from bad fish. So essentially, how do we finish strong? And I'm going to go through four points. Four major points from four different parts of the Bible and we'll talk. Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 from verse 13 to 14. Philippians 3, 13 to 14. The Bible says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Have you read it? The first thing that we have to do to finish strong is we need to learn to forget. So can you tell yourself, learn to forget? Learn to for what? To forget. What does this mean? What does this mean? So you see, I've often heard that there's an analogy that people people give. I've often heard that the Christian life is like a slope and there's no stopping. You're either going up or you're coming down. There are points to which I agree with that. There are points to which I don't. 
Because in the life of a man, there would always be periods of waiting. We are not always encumbered with activities in this our Christian life. There would always be periods where God will take you through a place where you are, you are waiting. You are learning something. That's not stagnancy. It's you building yourself up for the next step that you are going to take. But what does it mean to learn to forget? Does it mean that, because we've talked about some things in this church, and I want to dignify us, I mean, differentiates between them. So there was a time we were teaching, and we talked about godly sorrow, right? And we talked about the fact that, as Christians, we should not move forward too quickly when we make a mistake, right? In that, we should learn to allow the Spirit of God to do what He wants to do in our hearts. So if, for example, you make a mistake today, when you ask for forgiveness, you have to repent. And repentance is in your will. You have to know those things that led you to the place where you fell so that you don't fall there again. And the Spirit of God does that in our hearts. He actually does. But he doesn't do it if you don't let him. He's a very gentle spirit. The Holy Spirit does not correct if you don't give him the opportunity to. When he's speaking and you're not listening, he leaves you alone. So I have found, and you might testify in your life, that there is nothing that you do. Our teacher was talking today, and one of the things she talked about God's will. She said, before you fall into sin, there's always a point of decision where you decide that, okay, I'm going to do that. It's not like you just wake up and say, oh my God, I've done it. No. It might be a split second where you make the decision to do that thing, but you decided to do it. And it is this that the Holy Spirit will help you to tackle. I've had people that have dealt with different things in their lives. You'd often find that people who have dealt with things that are sexually related, for example, there are steps before they get there. There are steps. There's usually something that they saw or something that they read. One movie they watched they were not supposed to watch. One book they read. At that point, they are not there yet. But they've opened the doorway. And the devil keeps pushing them until they fall. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps you to check yourself so that you don't even give room for what? For anything to happen that will lead you to sin. And that is the way that I say that don't move forward too quickly when you make a mistake. Because you keep going around in circles. You have to repent. And repentance is conscious. It has to be from your will. So that's not what we are saying. What I'm saying is you need to learn to forget means that you should not dwell on anything at the expense of your relationship with God. And there are two things that you can dwell on. You can dwell on your success. You can also dwell on your failure. So for example, you can dwell on the fact that for the last one month and two months, like I've been praying consistently, I've been reading my Bible, I've been doing well. Maybe God even used you to give a word to someone. Maybe you prayed for someone in your office and the person got healed. Maybe you joined your faith with someone and the person has a testimony and things are going well and that God is moving through you. Those are what successes, right? And because of that success that you're experiencing in your Christian walk and your relationship with God, those periods where you can hear God sharply and clearly in whatever form it exists for you, what you now decide to do is you now start relapsing on the things that you do in your closet. Maybe you wake up in the morning and you don't pray as much anymore. 
or you read your Bible just a little, basically the success that you are having has started to make you to trust in yourself. Paul is saying what? Forget. You have to learn to forget it because that thing is affecting your relationship with God. Anything that you dwell on that is going to negatively affect your relationship with God, you have to forget it. Whether it's good or it's bad. So in terms of failure, it's now when you make a mistake in your work with God, and rather than do those things that we already just talked about, what you do is you wallow in self-pity. And you say, hey, I've offended God, I'm a bad person, I'm the worst person in the world. Then you don't pray for one day, then you don't pray for two days, then you don't pray for three days, then you don't pray for one week. And over time, you even forget how you got there. You for- Because somehow you've let the devil pull you further and further away from God, simply because you did something that is wrong. What Paul is also saying is, learn to forget. You have to learn to forget. You have to learn to move on and know that the most important thing is your relationship with God. Don't dwell on anything that affects that relationship. You have to keep moving. Second thing, Hebrews 12, 1-2. The Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. There are two things that he said you should lay aside. He said you should lay aside every weight and what? And the sin that easily besets us. We'll talk about weights first. Weights are not sins. I've already described weights to an extent. Weights are not sins. Weights are things that can lead to sin. And I will talk about it a bit more in my next point. A weight is something that is holding you down. So he's using the analogy of a race, right? Because he said it's the race that is set before you. We watch the, How many of us watch sports or watch the Olympics with any form of fashion? If you watch sports, you realize that any race of any form, lightness is key. Whether it's a car or a bike, they design, or human beings, they design it in such a way that those cars are effective and efficient, but they are also light. They are not as heavy as Homer's. Because if they are that heavy, they can't move at that speed. Same thing with bikes. Same thing with human beings. Imagine someone competing in the Olympics and he puts weights on his legs and says he wants to run. So weights are not sins, but they can lead to sin. They will slow you down in your walk with God. They will not let your relationship with God be effective. Those are weights, and they are different for all of us. And I will touch on it a bit more when I get to the next point. Because the next point actually talks about it. But what I want to talk about right now 
is the sin that easily besets. Every human being, every human being has those things that they can easily fall into. And it's different for all of us. Hmm? I have a friend, an old friend that I used to tell something. I told him that, and we were very different in backgrounds. And background and pers- every all these things go into play. Personality, background, your history, your family come into play to make these things the way they are in our lives. But when you come to Jesus, the devil doesn't really attack you with new things. It's usually the same old stuff that was not a struggle before Jesus, but now it's something that you have to wrestle with. And I used to talk to him back then years ago, and I used to tell him that for me, it's, it's, it's pointless for the devil to tempt me with like, Let's say we're walking on the road and let's say we see a wallet on the floor, for example, and there's money inside, like plenty of money inside the wallet. And we now see it and we pick it up. I'm like, oh yeah, there's money inside this wallet. Like, for me, that's kind of a pointless temptation. No matter how broke I am. Because that's not sin that easily besets me. For me, it's different. And we used to joke that time and he would tell me, Billy, that's a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge problem for me like being able to pick up that wallet and say okay he wants to return it to the authorities or find the owner and not touch anything inside that wallet for him is what is huge for me it's nothing there are also some things for me that are huge problems and for somebody else it's really it doesn't easily what beset them there's everyone has those things that they are very likely to fall to. And you have to know yourself. And Christianity is practical. It's not theory. You get it's not just we're not just talking to ourselves. You have to know yourself. You have to know, okay, I am Billy. And based on my history, based on what happened before I came to Jesus, these are the things that the devil is using to disturb my life then. These are the things he's still using to disturb my life now. You have to lay them aside. Because they are not going to change. Hmm? The devil hardly will bring anything new to you. Most of the time it's the same old stuff. So in the book of Judges, there's a story of a man called Jephthah. Right? Jephthah was an orphan. So he was the son of a, of a harlot, rather. So basically he was an outcast. They cast him away because the person that gave it to him did not legally marry the father. But now, the children of Israel entered trouble. And they now went to get him and said, come and fight for us. He now said, but you people threw me away. Are you calling me to come and fight for you? They said he should come. That is their brother indeed. <laughs> they said he's their brother. He now said, okay, well, if I'm coming to fight for you, this is what you have to do. You have to basically legitimize my claim in the family. They agreed. But the point I'm trying to make is they were going up against... Um, they're going up the king, I think the Moabites. They were going, to, going up against the Moabites. And what happened next was the king now sent basically an emissary to Jephthah to tell them what they want. And the king was basically telling Jephthah that, well, we want you to vacate this land because you took this land from us um, illegally. So vacate in peace and we'll leave you alone. If not, we're coming to fight you. Then Jephthah, the outcast, now narrated, his response to the king was he narrated the history of Israel. 
when they came from Egypt and how they were walking through all those lands. And he told the king that we didn't take this land from you. We wanted to pass through this land. They didn't allow us to pass. We went around. We wanted to pass through this land. They didn't allow us to pass. We went around. Then we got to your land and you still didn't allow us to pass. And it became fight. So we fought and we won. <laughs> then we occupied this land. So we can't leave it because this is what happened. If you just let us pass back then, we'll not be here. <laughs> we'll not be here today. It sounds funny. But you see, it hits me that throughout the history of Israel till today, the same battle that the devil has been fighting with them since, is still the same battle he's fighting with them now. And the battle is a battle of land. In that God had given Abraham land as what? As an inheritance. And they don't want to agree that it's Abraham's land and therefore it's Israel's land. And from then till now, physical Israel is not the same fight. Still the same fight. It's our land. No, it's not your land. <laughs> the devil does. He really would attack you with something new. It's always the same thing. The problems are usually the same. The solutions are usually the same. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 9 from verse 24 to 27. says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain, and every man that striveth for mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep my body and bring it under subjection, lest by any means which when I have preached to others, I myself should be a cast away. I want to talk. The third point is temperance or moderation. Moderation. I want you to say something to yourself. I cannot allow my body to get all that it wants. I want you to be serious about it. I cannot allow my body to get all that it wants. You cannot give your body everything that it wants. That's what temperance is. That's what moderation really is speaking about. In that Paul said that those that are fighting for a crown that is perishable, Olympics, boxing, whatever sports, they put themselves under extreme stress and discipline, right? They discipline themselves just so that they can get the prize. Now, I think about it sometimes in football and I laugh. Because fight, 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 you play 38 games in the season. Out of all those 20 teams, only one of those teams is going to carry that cup at the end of that year. And they go again the next year. But every team is what? Battling. And there was a time in, in sports, for example, before sports science became a thing, where players used to live anyhow to an extent, where players still like drank and did some other things and it was common knowledge. But now, because of sports science, most teams have like serious dieting, exercise regimens for their players so that their players can last. And the best of the best players don't indulge in a lot of things. 
They don't indulge in a lot of things. To keep their bodies what? Fit. Now that Ronaldo is 37 and he's still behaving as if he's 20-something, he's more fit than I am. And that's to obtain a crown that is what? That is perishable. And he uses that analogy, like how much more a crown that is what? Not perishable. How much more this heaven that we are all trying to what? To attain. How much more this end that we are trying to get to? Why won't you put this body under what? Subjection. You cannot let your body get the, all that it wants. Sometimes we don't see the connection between it and sin. But the connection is so strong. When you eat too much, when you sleep too much, when you drink too much. I'm never talking about alcohol now. Drinking juice or water. You don't see the connection between it and sin. When you watch too much of your favorite shows, when you read too much, I don't know, novels or whatever, you don't see the connection between it and sin. But the truth is that you have just 24 hours in a day. So I'll tell you a story about myself. So in 2020, before 2020, I used to read a lot of books. I like reading novels a lot. And I used to give myself like yearly targets. And my early targets used to be like 60 books, like 50 books. And I will meet it, at least or I'll try to meet it. I read like 40. I read like 40 something. And in 2020, I met the target. But it was at a great cost. Because at the end of that year, now I didn't meet targets in 2020, but I almost did. And I realized I could not meet it. And at the end of that year, I had to sit down and talk to myself. Because you see... Sometimes in life, the only person that can really talk to you is yourself. You have to sit down and you have to talk to yourself and be realistic about what exactly you are doing with your life. And I said to myself, Billy, you say you want to grow up spiritually. You say that you want to know God better. How are you reading 40 novels in a year? Like, it's not a realistic plan. This one is not even about time management or anything. It's about the fact that I have 24 hours in a day. And I told myself, and right, st- starting from 2021, I didn't even bother giving myself targets like that. I just cut it down. I just gave myself a rule. You are allowed to relax. Because I read those books to relax. But I gave myself a rule and told myself, if you are reading so-so and so amount of novels, you are reading double of Christian books and materials. I just told myself, at least double. And that put me on a pedestal because the problem is not that reading those books are, is bad. Do you understand? But I cannot afford to give my body what it wants. What it wants. <laughs> because the problem with the body is not that pleasure is not supposed to be for us. Adi has taught us a lot about how eating means pleasure. God desires that his children will live pleasurable lives. The problem is that this corruption in this flesh always tends towards excessiveness. It's excessiveness that is the problem. In that if you do not put your body under subjection, if you don't discipline yourself, you would always do it too much. If you let yourself go, no matter how simple that thing is, you would do too much of it. You will eat too much. You would rest too much. 
And you don't know the connection between it and sin, but it's a huge connection. Because the truth is, you are feeding something you are not supposed to be feeding. And you are starving something that you are supposed to be feeding. So you have to talk to yourself. You have to feed your spirit. Hmm? Tell yourself, I have to feed my spirit. I have to feed my spirit. I have to take in more of the word of God. Hmm? And it's practical. Like, it's practical. I set out times in the week when all I do is I study and I pray. I have two days in the week. And let me tell you, those two days, none of them is easy. Like, I cannot tell you there's one time that I did it. And when I'm about to start it, as I wake up on Tuesday morning, I say, yes, it's another Tuesday. (laughs) It's not easy. But what I notice is, when I start and I start doing it, I am strong. But the strength is not physical. It's not like, because, I mean, most of the time I'm fasting at those times anyway. So it's not like I'm strong in that I have eaten that day. The strength is that I am feeding me, the real me that is inside. I'm stocking myself with the word of God. I'm reading things that are building up my spirit and my faith. It has to be a conscious thing. We don't grow up spiritually by accident. The same way a child does not grow up by accident and is healthy. If you give birth to a child today and your parents today, if you go to the hospital, the doctors will have to tell you what to feed that child, how the child is supposed to consistently grow. If not, you give him more of one food than the other and the child will be malnourished. So we don't grow up spiritually by just, you know, saying, man, I wish I could read my Bible more. Man, I wish I was deeper in God. It's not a wish. You can't wish it. You have to practically what? Do it. And the truth is, it will take your time. It will take your time. But something has to be sacrificed. You have to starve your soul of the things that it enjoys. Maybe you enjoy watching football or you enjoy doing this. You have to starve your soul. All that is just enjoyment for yourself and you're relaxing. You have to sit down and really talk to yourself and say, what am I really doing? Because if you are really running this race and you want to meet your Redeemer, you have to run it with temperance and moderation. Hmm? You cannot afford to give this your body everything that it wants. If you give it all that it wants, you won't finish this race well. I'm not cursing you. It's just the truth. Amen. The final point, First Peter 5, 8. The Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, Walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Let's read verse 9. Whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in what? In the world. And the last point is what? Be what? Be sober. Be what? Be vigilant. Being sober has to do 
primarily with your emotions. Being vigilant has to do primarily with your mind. Being sober means that you cannot afford to base your spiritual life hmm, on excitement and how good it is feeling at a particular time. Hmm? So on days that things are going well for you, don't use that as a yardstick to measure your relationship with God. Because if you use it to measure your relationship with God, when things are not going so well, you will fall. And the problem we have is that we have Christians that are not sober. We have a lot of sentimental and emotional Christians. Those are the good time Christians. When things are going good, they are with God. When things are not going good, they go and find their own solution and make it good again and come back. Those Christians are not sober. You cannot base your Christian life on sentiments and emotions. A vigilancy, though, has to do with your mind. And the Spirit of God helping you to watch out for things. The Bible says that we are not ignorant of the devices of the devil. You cannot afford to be ignorant about how the devil tempts you. He will rarely tempt you with something that is new. Hmm? So you have to know, this is how the devil tries to get to me. This is his pattern. This is his way. Devil is very paternistic like that. He would always try in a particular way to get you. And you have to know, you have to know his devices. That's what it means to be vigilant, so that you are aware, so you can nip it in the board. Amen. So you have to be sober, you have to be vigilant. And he gave you the reason why. Because your adversary, the devil, is going about like what? Like a lion, looking for who you what? Devour. But the next thing that he says is one of the most important things. And he says that you should do this, you should resist him what steadfast in the faith, knowing that the afflictions that you are suffering are also accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You are not what? Alone. Isolation a lot of times in the Christian walk. It's one of the greatest weapons that the devil tries to use in deception of the mind. Because the first thing the devil wants to do to you is to make you feel like that thing that you are going through, you are the only one. That you are the only one it has what it has ever happened to. That that temptation or whatever it is, you are the only one he has ever tempted with that thing in this life. That there is nobody in this world that hasn't gone through that same thing and God has delivered him. He does it to weaken your faith. He does it to weaken what? Your faith. So he says you have to have a knowing that no matter what it is, your brethren around the world are going through the same thing. And they are also standing fast. So it's not just you. Which means that the help that God has made available to them is also available for you. Someone has passed through what you are passing through before and he has won. So why can't you what? Win. You're not alone. And he said, knowing that has to be inside you. You have to know it. 
Because if you don't know it, you won't be able to run well. You won't be able to finish strong. Amen.